Good morning. There I am. Um, dramatic pause. Uh, good morning. My name is Scott, uh, and um, I was the one you just sang to, <laughs> if you didn't know who that was. Um, we are in a series in the Ten Commandments. Um, today we jump into the Sixth Commandment. Uh, but before I do that, just two quick things. Uh, what was the first one? Oh, the first one is, uh, if you were at the member Q&A last week, no judgment. But I told you that none of you would get your stuff in quickly, and then you all bright-eyed said, you will F, come on, like, I will do it. Two of you have done it, <laughs> which is great. Um, but just truly friendly, non-judgmental reminder, get your stuff in. Um, if you were not there, you don't know what I'm talking about, which is totally fine. But if you were there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So just friendly reminder, somebody probably needs to give you a little nudge, uh, so consider this your friendly nudge. Second thing is, um, last week, if you were here, you saw Michelle Shaw, who's our Director of Global Partnerships, uh, get up here and introduce a ministry that um, Kevin DeAndrea and his wife are, are deeply involved with. He was the other gentleman who was up here, called Hope Chest Uganda. And I just kind of wanted to add my voice to what an exciting opportunity this is for us. We, um, we're stepping into a fairly well-established partnership uh, between, between that ministry, which is in Uganda, and uh, a whole bunch of uh, Christians here in North Brunswick, not even Christians and non-Christians, who have linked arms with that ministry over there in Uganda. And basically what we're doing is trying to step in and provide another means of, um, of people and time and energy and focus to keep what is really an exciting, and hopefully you got a sense of that, a really exciting partnership going. And so um, what that looks like immediately is that our church is supporting them as one of our external partners. But um, <clears throat> the other thing that we would really love to do is right now they have eight kids who, uh, who need sponsorship. And it's, it's a pretty classic sponsorship model, you know, if you're familiar with World Vision or Compassion or any of those. Um, and all we need is eight to kind of, uh, kind of stake our claim as, hey, we're going to be helpful to this, and we're going to show up for you, and we're going to meet needs when needs arise. And so if you're interested in doing that, please don't hesitate um, it's in the weekly email. It'll be in the weekly email again. Go ahead and click on that link, and, and let's get those eight sponsorships taken care of, honestly, so that we can do more. Let me tell you my favorite thing about that ministry and why uh, Michelle and I actually went to kind of an interest meeting, and we're like, yes, we're jumping in on this. My favorite thing about that ministry is that while we provide stateside partnerships and all these things, they actually have a group of people in that village who they literally call the Guardians, um, which is just a great name for a board, but it's, it's their own folks who come up with what they feel like the, um, the most urgent needs are in that community and how we might help them meet those needs. And it's the kind of sustainable model that you just don't see often, which is, yeah, we can provide, we can provide finances, we can provide things that, that they don't have access to, but they're the ones defining their needs for us. And that's why it's been such a beautiful, sustainable, over literally like over 10, 15 years, something like that. Um, like they came up with a program where they realized if we just paid to get goats in people's houses, um, that would be so exponentially financially like a windfall for them. And it was very inexpensive on this side of things, but it's had this amazing impact such that if you remember in that video, the, the woman who's sort of shaking out the grain, um, she said, yeah, that goat changed our lives and now we have a roof on our house um, because of it. And it's just stuff like that where when, when we were meeting them and talking to them, it was kind of like, all of the really successful stuff, all of the beautiful stories were stuff we never could have imagined they needed or actually would have helped that those guardians came to us and said, hey, here's really what we're thinking. So it's very education focused. That's a lot of what our money, our centralized money as a church will go to. And then these sponsorships allow kids to get into that program. And then every now and then what we anticipate, the guardians will come to us and say like, hey, we really feel like this would be a step forward for our community. Could we do a little special capital campaign and provide what that is. And so, um, really excited about that. You'll hear tons more about it in the future. The immediate thing is, guys, we should be able to do eight sponsorships like, like it's nothing. I have no other way to say that other than say, I know that we're a generous community. Um, let's get that done so that we don't have to you know, keep asking for that so that we can kind of move on um, to, to other things. Cool? Great, okay. Um, we are in the Sixth Commandment today, uh, which is kind of traditionally called the Second Tablet 
of the Ten Commandments. Most people um, would say that sort of the first five are more focused on our relationship to God and what properly ordered life with, with respect to God is like. And then the fifth commandment kind of provides a bridge into uh, the second half of the Ten Commandments where it's much more focused on horizontal relationships. There's actually an interesting, I'll just throw this out there, there's actually a really interesting argument um, that... Um, that's pretty compelling that actually the two tablets, two tablets are mentioned, and so in our minds, two tablets, five on one, five on the other one, but two tablets were also something that was done um, when a covenant was made between two people. They would write out what a covenant was like a contract in the ancient world, and they would write out the stipulations of that contract, and then they would make a copy of it so that it could be distributed to both parties. So what the two tablets mentioned could be is just sort of we have our copy as the people of God, and God keeps his own copy as sort of a mutual. I just think that that's interesting. It speaks to the um, sort of sort of the, the dual commitment that's being made in the Ten Commandments, but it's very preachable to say we're headed on to the second tablet and the second five. Um, whatever it is, um, it's... Uh, it's beautiful uh, that, that God gave it to us this way. And there's certainly this division in the Ten Commandments of the first five have a lot more to do with God, that fifth one with, as kind of a bridge. It mentions God, mentions our relationship to God, but also to earthly parents. And now we head into much more horizontal. So what is the sixth commandment? Anybody know? What is it? Yeah, murder. Exactly. Thou shalt not kill. Uh, what's really interesting is, is the next three commandments are two words in the, in the original Hebrew. The, uh, Tyler mentioned this last week with the fifth commandment. Is, uh, the fifth commandment is like one-third of the text of the entire Ten Commandments. There's a lot there. There's, you know, honor your father and mother, going into the land. Uh, it will go well with you, all this different stuff. And then you get these three quick-hit commandments. No murder, no adultery, no stealing. Like, boom, 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 just, just very quick. And my wife just told me on the way here, uh, my son was like, boy, this is going to be one quick sermon. And I fought that all week. It's sort of like, all right, everybody, we in? Like, don't murder, right? Like, don't murder. Uh, don't murder, right? Like, um, and uh, there's truth in that, right? That is what this commandment is saying. It's saying, thou shalt not kill. What's really interesting is we have earlier in, in, the, in the scriptures the first mention of this is actually after the flood, if you know kind of the progression of, of early Genesis. After the flood, after Noah comes out of the flood, you have this in Genesis 9, verses 6 and 7. I'll just read this to you. It says, um, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. This is after Noah and the flood. This is a reaffirmation, sort of a, a restart is kind of how it's told, of the creation project between God and humanity. And right there in the midst of it, you have this mention of, and oh, by the way, no more of this murdering stuff. Which is interesting, because again, if you know the story, right, we go from Adam and Eve, pretty, pretty famously, to their kids, Cain and Abel, and what happens there? Murder, right? And then it gets worse from there. It doesn't get better from there. It gets worse from there, and you have all of this bloodshed in the rest of the story. So now the creational project is restarting, and it's almost as if, it's almost as if God is saying, I didn't know I had to say this first time around, but let's get this right the second time around. No more murdering. Not okay. Because, and what he's saying here is, um, the exact phraseology is whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. I don't think that that's like some strong argument for capital punishment as much as it's what Tyler said last week, which is, look, when we obey the ways of God, things tend to go well for us. There's not a quid pro quo. There's not a one-to-one. But when you're in line with the way God created the world, things will go better. Same is, is true of the opposite. When you're not in line with the way that God has designed the world. You're out of step. Now there's wind in your face. I think what he's saying here is sort of the latter. It's like, look, if you're a bloodshed kind of person, expect that that might return to you. It, violence begets violence. Right? We, we see this in 6,000 ways. We see this between civilizations. We see this within specific communities, that violence 
We see this within families and generations, right? Violence has a way of birthing more violence. That's what he's saying here. And then what's the argument for not doing this? Did you hear it? What was the argument? Yeah, because we're made in the image of God. In other words, the inherent, unique role of humanity, the inherent and unique worth and value of a human being means that to snuff it out is of ultimate offense to the God in whose image that person was created. This is an affirmation that so much, we've been talking a lot about seeking justice and mercy in the, in the uh, particularly in the D course that Jalen and Rach are leading. Right? And so much of it goes back to, look, our, our view of justice is grounded in, in the unique worth and beauty and value of human life because humans are uniquely made in the image of God. That's what's being said here. So, right, so is that it? Is that it? So don't kill, right? Here's, here's what's enjoyable about this commandment is the vast majority of us sit here and say, nailed it, right? Like, I've got that one. Um, I've got that one covered, right? Um, unfortunately, <laughs> our faith doesn't stop at the Ten Commandments, right? Our faith actually has a trajectory to it, and our faith ultimately is grounded in Jesus. And so today, we're going to hear a lot from Jesus. In fact, you already did from what Emily heard. And so we're going we to move forward in the story a bit to the teaching of Jesus specifically and the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So go with me in whatever Bible you have, whether on your phone, you can grab the one on the chair, uh, under the chair in front of you. Go to Matthew chapter 5, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. All right, so I'll just tell you, I'm very tempted here to give a comprehensive intro to the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to resist that urge. Um, at some point, we will teach through the Sermon on the Mount. But here's what's worth saying. Um, where did this sermon take place? On the Mount. <laughs> Very good, young man. On the Mount, right? Um, so this is Jesus going up on a mountain and teaching the law to God's people. Does that remind you of anyone? Who does that remind you of? Moses, right? Like this is the reason why tradition has handed down this teaching as specifically the Sermon on the Mount is so that we don't miss what's going on here. This is Jesus standing in the place of Moses and saying, I too am a lawgiver like Moses. I too hear from God in a unique way, and have authority to speak on God's behalf. Therefore, I have things to teach you. Listen, though, to what he says very early on. You have the, what's famously called the Beatitudes. You have the famous teaching of um, we should be salt and we should be light. But jump down with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Mike, you have this, right? Yeah, cool. So Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, salt and light stuff, and then he sort of, it seems like he kind of stops. And this sounds like it would have been a pretty good introduction, and you almost get the sense that he places it here because he's, he's sort of reading the crowd in a way. So here's what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And I want you to hear there in, in this mention of the law, I want you to hear there the, the Ten Commandments, 
Um, Tyler was helpful last week in saying the Ten Commandments are, are sort of a, a broad heading for then a bunch of more specific laws that come. It's a good way to think of the Ten Commandments. So the law here at least means the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is saying, what I'm about to teach you, you're going to think I'm doing away with that. I'm doing anything but that. I'm not saying what's gone before me is now worthless. I'm not contradicting that. I'm not abolishing it. I'm not saying all of that stuff doesn't matter now. Only what I say matters. Instead, I'm not abolishing it. I'm here to what? Fulfill it, which is a very interesting word, particularly in Matthew's gospel. And again, this is where I'd put a bunch of verses up, but what fulfill means in Matthew's gospel, you see this throughout, you're probably most familiar with it. If you've been around church, been around the Bible a little bit, um, you're probably most familiar with it around Christmas when we go to the texts in, in Matthew that are about the birth of Jesus. You have these different mentions of this happened to fulfill what the scripture said in such and such a place. Right? This was to fulfill that the virgin shall be with child and she shall give birth and she shall call his name Emmanuel, right? And if you go back to all the places where that's mentioned, what's being quoted there is about something very different. It's like, well, those aren't necessarily texts that are like, and then when the Messiah comes, he will be born of a virgin and his name will be Emmanuel. Instead, it's actual events that happened in Israel's history that Matthew is pointing back to and he's saying, but the birth of Jesus fulfills that. You can almost say the birth of Jesus doesn't undo that, contradict that, do something other than that. It fulfills it. In other words, the coming of Jesus gives richer content, gives deeper meaning, gives more uh, effective accomplishment of what that earlier event was pointing to or what that early event was. You tracking with that? Fulfilled means it, 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 there's more true, necessary, greater content added to what's being quoted. So when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, to, but to fulfill it, sometimes, again, if, if you're familiar with Christianity, maybe your first thought goes to what that's saying is that Jesus came to actually live these things out. That is theologically true, 100%. Jesus perfectly lived out the law. He was sinless. That's not exactly what he's saying here, though. He's saying, in my teaching, I'm here to fulfill these things. In my teaching, I'm not here to undo what's been said to you previously. I'm here to add greater content to it. I'm here to show you the trajectory of it and to fill it out and to tell you God's deepest intentions for that law. Okay, now what he starts to do, if you've ever heard the Sermon on the Mount, is he starts to do these, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, which you can hear why he gives the preface that he does. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And he's saying, again, not what you've heard is wrong. What you've heard needs to be abolished. Now listen to me. You've heard that it was said, but the fulfillment of that is. That's what he's doing there with these sort of what sound like contrasts. First one that he does, down in verse 21, Mike. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Where is he getting that from? Yeah, he's getting it partially from Genesis. He's getting it from the sixth commandment. Just make sure you're awake, right? Like that's, that's why we're talking about this text, everybody, because he's literally quoting the sixth commandment, right? So he's not saying you have heard that it was said, and we might expect don't murder, but I say to you, and you're like, right? Like, what's he gonna say, right? Like, but I say to you, totally cool if you murder, right? But I say to you what? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Is he weakening or strengthening the command? Strengthening, right? Like in a big way. Here's what he's doing, okay? The Apostle Paul talks a lot about this, about the purpose of the law. The law was like boundaries. And God was saying, if I can keep you within these boundaries, we can, we can preserve some sense of order here among my people. That's, that's what the law was. That's how Paul talked. It was a... It was a 
it, it, he talks about it like a tutor. It was a, it was a taskmaster. It was, it, was, it was just kind of meant to keep you in line until you reached full maturity. Unfortunately, the people of God never reach full maturity, so they always need those boundaries, right? Little kids have more laws and rules and boundaries than grown adults, ideally, right? Because adults have a certain maturity to make their way in the world. Here's how, here's how I was thinking of it this week. Um, uh, I'm coaching my little guy in basketball, right? And at the first practice, we will likely say, all right, kids, come stand in the middle of the court. See those white lines all around? That's the out of bounds. You can't go out of bounds, okay? The game is played within these, within these lines. Okay, you can't push each other down. This isn't football, okay? You guard like this, not like this, right? Like some of you are coming off football. We're going to have to learn that you're not allowed to push each other. Right? If I stop there, now those are laws of basketball. Not allowed to go out of bounds, not allowed to push people. But the point of basketball is not to stay in bounds and not push people, right? That's not the goal. That's not the full meaning. Until you explain the actual goal here is to get this ball into that basket and to do it more times than the other team does. That's the purpose. But those laws play a role in saying, these are the boundaries within which that's going to happen. Jesus is saying the Old Testament gave you the boundaries, gave you the, you can't push each other down. I'm here to fulfill and say, but there was a far deeper purpose to the life of my people than you guys just staying in bounds and not pushing each other down. There is something far deeper. There are intentions of God, purpose of, purposes of God, far deeper than don't kill each other. And this is what they are. And he says, so let's, let's talk about the deeper purpose of the law here. Let me fulfill that for you. Let me strengthen it. Let me give you a vision of what life as God's people is actually supposed to look like. Why is Jesus the appropriate one to do this? It begs that question. Spoiler alert, right? You can wait till the end to talk about this. Spoiler alert. Jesus is the one who gets to talk about this because he alone will provide what God's people up until that time lacked in order to have any shot of fulfilling what God was calling them to. One of the lessons of the Old Testament is that apart from God's direct intervention, even the people closest to him, even those who call him by name their God and who he identifies himself with, cannot obey even the boundaries of the law, let alone fulfill God's deeper purposes for the law. Jesus comes and with the audacity to say, I'm not here to abolish the law, I'm to tell you actually a much deeper, grander, more beautiful vision of what the law was always meant to point towards. And I have the authority to do that because what I'm about to do is actually going to provide for you God's intervention to make you keepers of the law at last. And so he says, so this is my vision for what a life lived in my kingdom looks like. You tracking with that? That makes sense? Okay. So what does he point out here? What he points out is that the seed of murder, murder, which, which very few of us feel like fought a, fought a hard fight with murder this last week, right? Like he says the seed of that is always anger. What's interesting is, I'll quote Jen Wilkin because that's what we do every week up here now. Um, Jen Wilkins says, the problem isn't with mere anger, but it's anger nursed, anger indulged, and anger gratified. Somebody does me wrong. Somebody commits an injustice. I nurse that. I indulge that. I gratify that. You know how you know when you have this kind of anger going on? Another... another uh, Another writer, Dallas Willard, who has informed a, a lot of the way we think about discipleship at our church, is he says, it seems like 
What Jesus is really warning us against is he said that the closest word that he could come up with is contempt. Contempt. And he says what contempt is, check this, what contempt is, is the studied degradation of another. The studied degradation of another. You ever been so hurt by someone that you spend your time thinking about what you would say if you had the chance? Or what you hope that they suffer as a result of what they've done to you? You ever do that little revenge fantasy thing in your head? You ever see someone struggle or fail who you've had issues with? And there's something in your heart that goes, good. That's what they deserve. Just desserts for messing with me. Right? She says, be really careful. What he says is, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What he's saying there is, when he says liable to judgment there, it's an interesting little phrase. What he's saying is like, you're on your way to judgment. You're on your way to the type of behavior that deserves judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's a, that's a legal board at that time. He's like, he's like you're going to find yourself in front of the authorities. If you start insulting someone behind their back, saying horrible things about them, that's nursing, that's watering that seed of contempt. And if that thing bursts through the soil, there's going to be all kinds of chaos in your own life. And he says, and whoever says you fool, which is this, this wild, uh, you might know this because I was always like, I'm never saying that word, right? Church kid, you're like, that's the one I'm not going to say. Um, does anyone know what that word is? It's an Aramaic word. Yeah, raka. Like, it's this really interesting, um, which probably would be like, whoa, um, if we knew really what it meant. It's, it's sort of like the ultimate, like, it's kind of wild to think of, like, Jesus is teaching, and then he says, like, a really bad word, and people must be like, ooh, right? Like, what? Um, what he's saying here is, there are things we can say that are so dismissive of another person's humanity that are a kind of murder that are a kind of assault on the image of God in that person, that are maybe short of physical aggression, but the verbal aggression, the emotional aggression that it comes from, it's probably just a difference of, frankly, opportunity. I have a chance to cut this person down. They're nowhere to be found. They might never know I'm doing. Keep going, Mike. So what do we do instead? Just don't get mad, right? No. He says there's, there's actually a distinctly Christian way to engage that kind of offense. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. There's sort of three practices that I want today's message to land in that I just commend to you that are familiar to any of you who have been through our discipleship course content, any of the core curriculum. But I think what Jesus is getting at here to use some like modern verbiage is he's talking about keeping close accounts, short accounts. You ever heard that language? Keeping short accounts with someone? Not allowing offense to build Do you know that offense has a way of accumulating compound interest, right? Fend me once, okay. Fend me twice, okay. Fend me three times, okay, right? Has a way of building over time and adding and multiplying over time, right? Here's what I'll say. The closer the relationship is, the shorter your accounts need to be. This is how marriages that have no obvious like central betrayal in them can still end up in really horrible places. Because by the time you get around to actually expressing the ways in which you've wounded each other, you've got four years of compound interest on those offenses. Right? That's what makes it really hard to untangle it. Closer the relationship, the shorter the accounts. I'll just give you 
two little phrases that can be relationship savers that we've learned in our discipleship course. One is, I notice and I prefer. I notice and I prefer. I notice that you're okay with the garbage bag sitting in the middle of our kitchen overnight. I'm just using this as an example. This comes from nowhere. And I prefer that once the garbage is out of the bag, that it be taken outside so that we don't welcome, you know, little ratatouille into our home, right? I notice and I prefer. I notice that when I call you at work, you're always distracted. You never give me your full attention, and I'm trying to communicate really important information. And I would prefer that when I call that you step away and you give me your full attention, right? And then you're allowed to say, as a person receiving that, well, I notice that a lot of times you call me in really busy times, you don't give me the option of saying, hey, could we talk another time when I can? That's, that's real conflict resolution. That's adult peacemaking. We love to keep peace. And if you keep peace long enough, it very easily becomes false peace. And Jesus has no interest. He does not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He says, blessed are the peace, what? Makers. And to make peace takes enormous effort. Peacemakers in this world are some of God's biggest heroes because it takes a lot of bravery, time, and emotional input to make peace in the midst of relational conflict. And I am telling you that sometimes it literally comes down to just having enough shared language together to work through stuff quickly, right? Because I notice and I prefer is sort of like a, Sarah and I, we, we, do, this, we do this very regularly. Hey, hey, I gotta notice and prefer. And your heart rate goes up if you know, your spouse says that and you're like, oh boy, here we go. And nine, nine times at least out of 10, it's something small. And I say, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I didn't realize that that mattered so much to you or whatever, right? But if you don't do that and the garbage does stay out and the rats come and now we've got a rat infested home, literally or metaphorically, let the reader decide, right? Like now you've got a rat infested home. Now you've got way bigger issues. And now you've got the pent up, I knew this was gonna happen. I knew it, I knew it. You always leave the garbage out. Nobody likes to be on the other end of an always, right? You always, oh, oh, I'm sorry, always, right? Now that's not, that's not what conflict resolution sounds like, right? But it does sound like, hey, I notice and I prefer, and I can do that, right? Another great one, when you, I feel. When you, I feel. Hey, when you don't respond to my texts in the middle of the day, I feel like I'm not that important to you. Now, here's the thing about feelings. Feelings aren't always valid, but feelings are real. And expressing your feelings to your friend, your roommate, your parent, your child, your spouse is a necessary part of creating a loving relationship where real empathy is experienced. Because if I don't know how you feel, if I don't know how what I'm doing actually impacts you, then the hurt is only going to continue. But if you give me an opportunity to let me know how I feel, and if I actually love you and care about you, I'll say, wow, I had no idea that it was making you feel that way, right? So valid or invalid, at least there's an acknowledgement, this is really what's going on with me in my heart. This is the impact that you're really having. And guys, listen, so much of conflict, and look, here I'm not talking about, right, uh, major massive conflict, right? We'll, we'll actually get to the, the one that I think speaks to that. I'm talking about everyday stuff. I'm talking about everyday relationships. I'm talking about your closest friendships. I'm talking about your roommates. I'm talking about complicated parent-child relationships. I'm talking about spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, right? Like, that's what we're talking about here. That's, that's the kind of conflict that we're talking about. So much of it comes down to the fact that our impact does not always match our intent. When you ignore my text in the middle of the day, I feel like I'm not important, right? That's the impact that you've had. Your intent might be, 
oh, I'm just waiting until I can have more time to actually text you more significantly. But your impact has been you've made that person feel unseen. You gotta acknowledge that before you say, yeah, but that was not my intention. Unfortunately, what makes it hard to be a fellow human being is that a lot of times the other human being doesn't always experience our intent. They experience maybe an impact that's out of whack with what we intended. That's why we got to make peace. Because a lot of times that creates a lack of peace. You know who loves that? The enemy loves that. He loves to step into that and say, yeah, they don't care about you. They're so unloving. They're so heartless. They love their work more than they love you. Hear all those lies and accusations that come up, right? We love to engage that voice. Now you're in this, right? Oh, when they come home, what am I going to say to them, right? You get what I'm saying? I notice and I prefer. When you, I feel. When you, I feel is just a gift. <laughs> it's just a gift that I give you. It's been a gift in our life. When you don't know what to say, so often that phrase will get you there. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what it is. The thing that they're doing makes me feel this way. The other, the other thing that I would add here, the other, I don't know that it's so much of a practice, but it's, it's just what Jesus himself so often teaches, is that forgiveness is a massive priority in the life of a follower of Jesus. Forgiveness matters so much to Jesus. I have no other way of saying that. So much of how he judges, I think I could say this, so much of how we, maybe not judges, so much of how Jesus evaluates the authenticity of our faith is the extent to which we are willing to forgive others. He says very bold things about the priority of forgiveness in the life of a believer. Like, if you don't forgive others, what prayer do you have of accepting the forgiveness that I have for you? Or, if you don't forgive others, then be careful because God might not forgive you, which sounds like one of the scarier, just blunt things that Jesus says. But I think that what he's getting at here is, if we are anything as Jesus' people, down at our root, down at the very bottom of who we are, we are a forgiven people. That's who we are, Jacob Swell. At root, we're not righteous people. We're not holy people. We're not better than the world people. We're not theologically astute people. Way down bottom at the root, we are forgiven people. That's the only shot we got, is if at some point we went to God and said, I have offended you and others to a point that I can barely bear myself, would you forgive me? Would you provide what I need in order to be forgiven in your eyes? And amazingly, in the cross, Jesus says, yes, I can provide that. Because by the way, what makes forgiveness hard is that all forgiveness is costly, right? You've heard us say this before in D-Course. Forgiveness costs you something. If Jalen comes into my house and breaks my lamp and I say, Jalen, I forgive you, guess who has to pay for the lamp? I do. If I say, Jalen, you're buying me a new lamp, have I forgiven him? No, I forgive him when I say, I'm willing to pay the cost of what's been broken. That's why the cross is necessary. That's why God can't just wave his hand and say, it's A-OK -okay out there, humanity. Totally fine by me. Wink, wink, you're forgiven. He says, no, there's a cost. It's costly, the fallenness, the brokenness, the sin and rebellion of humanity. Look at what it's cost. Look around. Then he goes and he bears it upon himself. The hand of the Father's placed upon him. He says, take all of the evil all of the wickedness, all of the corruption, all of the death, all of the chaos, all of the violence upon yourself. And we get a whisper of what that was like for Jesus in the deeper spiritual realities of what's going on when God places his hand upon him on the cross. We get a whisper of it by what Jesus experienced on his way to the cross. The whippings and the bearing the cross and the insults and all. Do you know that that was just a little teeny tiny picture a little thimble of what he actually bore? Because if he bore all of the cost of what it took to forgive us, imagine that. That's what he did. And then we have the audacity 
to act like we ourselves at base are not a forgiven people, but something else. That we at base are judges who can morally evaluate someone else and say, you're not worthy, sorry. You're not worthy of forgiveness. This is why Jesus takes it so seriously. We have to be a forgiving people. Hear me, church. Here's what forgiveness is. It's saying, best definition I've ever heard of forgiveness. I do not get to decide. I relinquish my right to decide how you should suffer for what you've done for me. That's forgiveness. That's forgiveness on our end. It's to say, I relinquish the right to be your judge. This is why God says things like, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What he's saying there is not, I'm a vengeful God. He says, your vengeance given to me is mine. It's mine. I'm the only one who can judge appropriately. So whatever you think you have the right to judge, hand it to me. It's mine. It doesn't look good on you. It doesn't go well with you when you do that, when you harbor, when you have a studied degradation of another. It dehumanizes you, right? You've probably heard this before, right? Unforgiveness is drinking poison and thinking the other person's going to die, right? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, my law is always a law of freedom, right? This is where we began. These are rules for the liberated life is one of the phrases that we've used. He says, you want to go free, you got to start forgiving. You got to learn what it looks like to say, I don't get to decide how you suffer. It doesn't mean that here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not saying, and what you did is okay. Do you know that even God's forgiveness is not that kind of fake forgiveness? God doesn't say, I died for you. Now all the horrible stuff you did, no big deal. That's not God's forgiveness, right? That's why the life of faith is is such a travail to work our way out of our former lives and into something new. Because that stuff still has consequences. So it's not looking at the other person. Some of you have been through horrible things. Horrible things, right? I know some of them. At times, teaching something like this is overwhelming because I know what some of you have suffered. What God is not calling you to is to say that the thing that was done to you was okay. He's also not calling you to trust that person again. You're never commanded to do that. Rebuilding of trust takes two parties. You both have to be willing to come to the table. He gives you the option of whether to do that or not. What he says is non-negotiable though is, you gotta hand over that vengeance thing to me. You gotta forgive. And that's not a burdensome thing to ask of us. It's him inviting us into liberation which is always what God's law does. It's always inviting us to greater freedom. He's like, give me that, give me that. It's exhausting being a judge when you yourself are aware that you're worthy of judgment. That's exhausting. He says, give it to me. Last thing I'll say is this. The, The one other practice that I would love to see us get better at This is sort of like the actually going on the offense and making buckets is way back in Genesis when God does the whole like, if you shed blood, by man your blood will be shed for they're made in the image of God. It's really interesting. The very next thing he says, I don't know if you caught this. Very next thing he says, Genesis 9, I think it's verse 7 and 8. I think verse 7 is that. And then 8 says, but you... Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What he's saying there is, don't be destroyers of life. Be givers of life. You are co-creators with me. And to be made in my image means one of the things that you can do to image me in the world is be a giver of life. Give life wherever you go. It's actually a beautiful vision of what obedience in the Christian life means. It means we're life givers. It means we're defenders of life. It means, and and here I've been emphasizing our words, right, in in the midst of relational conflict. So, So I'll stay in that context for a minute, right? Who are the people in your life that you would even use this language about? Oh, they give me such life. Oh, they give me such life. Who are those people? They tend to be people who encourage us. They tend to be people who remind us of truths we need to be reminded of. They tend to be people who call out what's best and beautiful in us. And I would love to see us get better at this, Jacob's Hall. 
I would love to see us be an encouraging people. To learn what it looks like, I, I saw, um, I forget who it was. I saw a tweet, you know, Twitter's all the rage. Um, I saw a tweet of someone who said, been trying a revolutionary new tactic um, where any time I think something, I think well of someone, I tell them. And they said, what's so interesting, August doesn't like this teaching, that's okay. <laughs> what I find really interesting about that, and what this person said was, it's so interesting once you default to that, trying to rationalize why you didn't do it before. What was I withholding? What was the loss in that, right? And I think the loss is that we could be misunderstood the loss is, I haven't heard from you in a while, and then this is what you come out with, right? We don't like the relational risk, even of encouraging one another. And would there be a more beautiful, distinctly Christian risk to take than saying, nah, I'll take the risk? Because you know what's most likely? Think of it, right? This is where we got to put ourselves on the other end of stuff. You get a text from someone that's like, hey, I was just thinking about you, and I just think you have one of the most generous spirits, and I love how you are with you know, strangers, how welcoming you are, and all that stuff. If you get that and you're like, ugh, right? Like, ugh, like, we never even really talk, or like, I just feel like that's on you, right? Like, that's on you. But most of you, I think highly of you, most of you would probably get that and be like, what in the world? That is the kindest, sweetest. You know when we do this stuff? I just had my birthday. We put this stuff in birthday cards, right? And we load it all up. We're like, what are the 17 nice things that I've thought about this person, right? Spread it out, baby. Like, tell them, tell them three, you know, tell me what you like about me three months from now. <laughs> well, it's not my birthday. But no, seriously, right? Like, we wait for these occasions, right? Or God forbid, because we see this all the time, God forbid we wait till someone's gone, right? There's one thing that I've learned about life this year is it is, way more fleeting than I thought when I was 38. And then you don't get to say it. And then you say a bunch of stuff in front of a bunch of people. I could tell you I had this experience, and I said, man, I wish I'd, wish I'd said more of it. wish I'd said more of it directly to them, right? Why not be encouraging? Why not take that risk? So what? You're misunderstood. So what? Someone says you never talked to me. You're like, well, I sure tried in the best way possible, you know? Like, I sure gave it a go, right? That's fulfilling the law. You want to fulfill the law, don't murder? Don't go to heaven and say, God, can we start with the sixth commandment? <laughs> because that one, right? Because your judge ultimately is Jesus, and Jesus will say, hey, I had a, I had a different standard here. Mike, go to that last text. That Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Just leave it there, Mike. Jesus says, you want to take this a step further? Move toward this kind of love, toward people who specifically are unworthy of it. Then, he says, then you will be sons of your Father who is in heaven, which is so interesting. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you want to image God to the world? Love your enemies. Why? Because God loves his enemies. Who? You. Enemy love is the highest calling of the law. It's the ultimate basket, if you will. You want to move all the way away from don't murder? Find a way to encourage those who are unworthy of your encouragement. Find a way to bless those who are unworthy of your blessing. He goes on to say this. For if you love those, keep going, Mike. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect <laughs> as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if we read this in the way we want to read this, it contradicts everything we know about the gospel, right? So be perfect morally, never messing up, as God is perfect or else. It's not what he's saying. 
That word perfect there is a word deeply related to the word fulfilled. It's almost the same word. Be mature. Move beyond the boundary lines. Grow up in your faith. Learn how to move beyond your instincts toward unforgiveness and petty peacekeeping. Move beyond those childish things. Move into maturity so that you might reflect your Father who is in heaven. Because he doesn't just want you, he doesn't want you to play the game by not stepping out of bounds and by not pushing people. He actually wants people to look in and say, what manner of love is that, that those people exercise among themselves and to those unworthy of it? You'll know, the world will know, that you are my followers, what? By the quality of your love. And what this is saying is it's got to be different. It's got to be different than instinct. It's got to be different than the culture and the world around us. We are in a cultural moment that loves contempt. I had a whole thing I was going to say about that, right? We are in a cultural moment that feeds off of contempt. Them. They're the problem. If they were just done away with, these insane surveys coming out, that it's not just Republicans are wrong, but Republicans should die. Democrats aren't wrong. Democrats should die. You know how anti-God that nonsense is? And it lives in the church? God forbid. He says, love your enemies. He literally says the exact opposite. So any, any of these people who have the name of Christ on their lips saying those from another political standpoint are unworthy of the image of God, unworthy of life itself, that ain't Christianity, y'all. That's some weird nationalistic political heresy nonsense. It's not going to live here. This is who we're called to be. Like our heavenly father who loved his enemies, who saw those who were wicked, who saw those with our back turned toward him and said, I'll pay the price. This is just, sometimes you just find someone who says something better than you do. Mike, put up that quote. The sixth word, the sixth commandment describes Jesus' character and actions. Jesus' entire life incarnates thou shalt not kill. Jesus doesn't assault God's image, but restores it. He doesn't wound, but heals. He doesn't take life, but gives it abundantly. He doesn't oppress, but liberates. His words, even his harshest ones, are words of life. He uses the sword of his tongue to defend the weak and to call the wicked to a repentance that leads to life. Jesus had cause to defend himself and to seek vengeance. He had legions of angels at his command. Instead, Jesus gives himself, suffers in silent patience, loves and asks forgiveness for his executioners. He doesn't kill, but dies a victim of murder and so gives life. Let's follow that one. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, that you set such a beautiful vision of what it means to be your people in the world. And then you provide the means for us to do it by your spirit. Lord, thank you that you have forgiven us in Christ, that he has paid the full debt, that he has paid for the rupture between us and you. God, as we come to this table and revisit that beautiful truth, Lord, I pray that you would um, show us, God, where we need to take more seriously this call. This call to follow you in your love for those unworthy of it. God, forgive us and make us new even as we come to this table this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.